what is this music? This is this is Pimba. Draws an older crowd, as you can see. Ansel Mullins and I were walking Batalla Square in the old town of Porto, and then, suddenly, a serenade of pimba ballads from an upstairs window in what appeared to be a senior citizen dance class filled with Natalie-dressed Portuguese old-timers trying for one last chance at love. Yes, it was serendipity, but also it's the kind of moment that Ansel has been delivering for a decade all around the world through Culinary Backstreets. If you don't know Culinary Backstreets yet, you should. They are a media company. Ansel and his writing partner, Yigal Schleifer, started it as a blog called Istanbul Eats many years ago. But the true magic is in their intimate, informed, and gluttonous food tours, now available in 14 cities around the world, including right here in Porto. We recorded this episode, of course, before COVID. And no, I'm not recommending that you hop on a plane to any of those 14 cities just yet. But Culinary Backstreets has done a hell of a job keeping the fires burning in lockdown through virtual tours and classes and through continuous reporting on the vendors and cooks in all of their cities and how they're surviving this pandemic. Like my friend Paul Rimple's recent profile of heroic Tbilisi chef Giorgi Yosaba, so I am telling you to go to culinarybackstreets.com right now and then to get ready for whenever this nonsense is all over when you can travel and eat with Ansel and his crew again. In this episode, Ansel and I talk about Porto and parenting, food tours and fado, but also fueled by the Cape Verdean punch he brought me in a little plastic bag, we talked at length about our mutual paramour, the lost city of Istanbul, circa 2012. Rest in peace, you beautiful city in your most beautiful year. This is Nathan Thornburg, and from Roads and Kingdoms, you are listening to The Trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world. Ansel. Yes. <laughs> Our drink is like just hanging out in a plastic bag here. And it, it looks good. It looks like there would be like cha-cha or something in there, you know, like, because it's just a, there's a plastic bottle. And a lot of good things happen in the alcohol world when it's just out of some sort of reused plastic bottle. Is that I, what's going on I here? I totally agree. Yeah. I mean, let's get get it out of the bag so you can see what's inside. Now, on the flip side, our cups are also wrapped in plastic. Right. This is the ASMR portion of the podcast. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> that looks like you peed in that <laughs> bottle. And maybe you're having some a little kidney revenge. problems. <laughs> uh, uh, wow. This is the punch of Senora Maria, uh, who operates a Cape Verdean taverna in Lisbon called Sao Cristóbal. Uh, she makes it in-house, and uh, this is something I discovered after moving to Lisbon uh, three years ago. And punch is mostly what you would expect it to be, a sort of aperitif okay. made from grog, Wait, sugar, sugar cane, molasses. You're saying this punch is made from grog? Yeah, grog. That's what? the word. Okay, define grog for me. I should know this. Grog is uh, cane liquor. Okay. So sugarcane liquor, which All they right. call grog. And uh, molasses, it's got some cinnamon in it, and lemon. And it's really sweet. But there are lots of different recipes, but this is hers. I asked her before, before I got it. What are you smelling? Sugars. Mm. Yeah, that's weird. But it's not like straight sugars. It's like, yeah, it's like uh, a little fermented sugar thing and it pours kind of thick mm-hmm. um yeah it's very syrupy all right so let's taste so this. let's let's get uh, started cheers what do we cheers. what do we say in uh, in porto anosa anosa to us to us whoa whoa that is like an island fireball, <laughs> you know, like that, like fireball, the shit that people um, chug when they're 
like snowboarding. Sure, sure. <laughs> so they're just basically like cinnamon hooch. Um, this is a very smooth, but deeply cinnamony, spiced out punch. It's good stuff. So you get you you can go into these little taverns and this the Cape. The concept of Cape Verde was something that was new to me as well. And uh, well, I brought this drink because it's something that. I think is one of the most interesting elements uh, in Lisbon is this connection to the the former colonies, and you know you can get straight in there with with your grog or your punch or whatever, and uh, then there's the music, and then there's just huge communities in Lisbon which uh, which exist, and that's something that I think is is quite interesting to explore here in Portugal. Yeah, I mean even even in New York, I would be hard fucking pressed to figure out where the Cape Verde party's at, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I know it's out there. It's probably up in Boston or something where all the... Yeah, there's big communities there. The, yeah, where all the... The whalers and all that. The Portuguese-esque. Mm-hmm. Who are those people? I had a landlord that was uh, a Zorian. Yeah, yeah. I, you could have... I thought that was from Tolkien. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Before, uh, before he set me straight. Uh, very nice man. Very... Upstanding, the Azorians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, uh, very locked in. I don't think he was drinking a lot of this punch. No, probably not. But yeah, it's, it's uh, Portugal's like that, right? It's a, it's a sort of a gateway to, like you said, sort of Tolkien places that we've never heard of. It, how, what does the word Madeira conjure in your mind besides like a dusty bottle in your grandmother's liquor cabinet? Isn't that, isn't that like an island that's in the middle of exactly like. Absolutely nothing, and it's a it's a part of Portugal, like the like the Azores that you mentioned, and and Cape Verde, which is a former colony. Yeah, I'm sort of at like uh, fling a dart at the map mode mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, where I'm just like, all right, cool, and and I've been trying to, um, I'm always trying to figure out how to get far quick. Thought about coming through here uh, to Luanda. Mm-hmm. Um, turns out it's actually not that cheap or practical still like I don't think TAP is doing a great job of making it easy for for visitors to go straight there but like Angola is definitely on the list mm-hmm. that's something you get out of Lisbon how much do you do you feel like you have a different like how do, how do people in Lisbon feel about all of this kind of colonial stuff coming back and and being in their town and are they as excited about this punch as as i am i don't think so um i think that punch probably arrived after the revolution you know when and and civil wars and and communities of cape verdeans and angolans and people from mozambique and goa all sort of made lisbon home more so than porto but also porto and I find Portuguese people are, are, are aware and, and they probably know punch, but I don't think it's their go-to cocktail for a Friday night. Yeah. But but the, the food and, and, and the culture and, and certainly the music is, is something that is quite familiar. Yeah. Um, but I find it sort of maybe a little more remarkable than a lot of people that I know in Port- Portugal do. Like a lot of people in Lisbon kind of, yeah, you know, they're aware, but... Well, you are, I mean, part of why I want to talk to you, you are famously fucking nerdy about exactly this kind of thing. Drinking a thing that's going to teach you a thing about uh, history and geography and place. Um, So it's a trick question. Of course, nobody's as excited about the story of Cape Verde and Punch as you would be. You've made a career out of being excited about that story. For sure. And uh, yeah, so I don't know who the Portuguese Ansel Mullins is. Perhaps they're out there, but you uh, you have taken that obsession uh, and gone global. And I I found a few descriptions of you, which I I feel like we oh, should no. just start riffing. CBS Sunday Morning called you a Backstreet Gourmet, <laughs> which. I, I, I think of like sex. I don't know what why. What sort of hat does a Backstreet Gourmet wear? I'm not <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, right. <laughs> Just looks kind of like really, uh, really dingy toque. It's not puffy. <laughs> yeah, maybe torn, stolen, perhaps. Uh, right. Or I mean, or like you know, it reminds me of like black block, like dumpster diving or something. You know, 
Um, anyway, if you had ever been uh, tempted to call culinary backstreets backstreet gourmet, it seems like it would be similar. It just has a really raunchier feel to it. Totally. Um, somebody else... It was Jeff, Jeff Gordonier in the uh, New York Times called you a food Sherpa. A Sherpa. A food Sherpa. I like Sherpa. that. Um, I carry you in your bag to the next <laughs> destination lunch. Uh, yeah, that's right. I'm just going to like carry this entire bag of simit so that you don't die. <laughs> exactly. Um, on, on the path. Um, I get it. It's sort of like uh, gritty and wandering. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think that's accurate. So I guess, I don't know. I'm, I want to have you tell me how all of that started, um, how you became a backstreet gourmet food Sherpa. Well, I mean, I, I didn't start as a, as a Sherpa. I think I was, I, I felt like I was a, a member of a community of Sherpas or so there was, there's a tribe of Sherpas. I'm not quite sure what you, what you'd say, but I think it that's was actually a, a, it was a conversation that was <laughs> you were part of an ethnic group in Istanbul. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was a conversation that I guess was going on, but it wasn't online. You know, it was it was being shared among friends traveling through different places. I was in Istanbul and it was the sort of information that everybody wanted or the talking about the kind of dining experiences that they were searching for. But it was much harder to find in, you know, the early 2000s. And. So Yigal, my partner, and I wanted to share that. It was a kind of uh, a response to the kind of coverage that Istanbul was getting at the time. Istanbul was getting, it was like this sort of minarets and lipstick, mini skirts kind of phase of, of coverage of the city. So, you know, when big media outlets would cover the city, there would inevitably be a shot of a girl on a dancing on top of a table with a mosque in the background, you know, and, and, it, and it needed to be a glitzy nightclub. I, I know her. Um, <laughs> listen, we had a good, we had good times. Okay. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not hating on it. Uh, but I get it right. You, um, but it was very surface. It was very, it was like a surface glance at the city and that particular city is where this was, I would say born inside me where I said, okay, I want to, I want to spend a lot of time, but really digging into, you know, the punches of, of Istanbul and, and geeking out on it and figuring out who makes this one and why they make it and does, you know, their village make it different from the other one because all of these different worlds were existing, you know, within spitting distance of the nightclub, right? Um, but they never crossed paths. So I felt like there was so much to dig into in Istanbul. And so it, that just sort of carried us to the present day where Yigal and I were... were you know, writing about these things seriously, you know, trying to find out the stories of the people in those restaurants, sharing it on our website, and then eventually designing, uh, you know, experiences where people could come with us and get in there and benefit from the relationships we built with these people and telling their stories. And hopefully people get a deeper understanding of the city through what would have been just like a greasy lunch. You had first gone to Istanbul... Uh, quite a while before then, right? 2002, yeah. 2002. And you had, so you're not from Istanbul. No, no. You're from Lisbon, you're from Chicago. Chicago, right. Um, how did you get to Istanbul? Istanbul was a, a place that I'd visited with my girlfriend at the time, and, and we were both living in New Orleans and kind of chomping at the bit to get out of the States. You know, but we wanted to get this sort of, global experience sort of living internationally living away from the places that we knew as home and seeing it as almost like unattainable the more you know the closer we got to something more like serious like jobs and all that yeah and so smart motherfuckers so we found the we found the moment um i was working for the mayor of new orleans we didn't get reelected. immediately lost my job and i said this is the perfect opportunity and so, uh, but I mean, like, what's the ratio of people your age who might even be unattached, uh, save a girlfriend, and everybody's like, let's go live overseas? Like, what's the ratio of people who ideate that and then actually make it happen? It's got to be minuscule. Well, I know maybe, you maybe know, more and more these days. I'm not sure. Right, as there's less to live for in the United States. <laughs> I, I, I just as someone who had sort of been frustrated in that same interest 
for decades mm-hmm. through no lack of opportunity or except for what life, you know, kind of uh, lassos and hog ties you with uh, back in the States. I've, I've, I've always found that impressive that you actually did it, uh, that you both managed to do it. You got it, you stuck it, and you stayed. Yeah. Um, but why Istanbul? Like, why? How? How is that the one that uh, that got you? It was. I, I think uh, we visited it and realized that that you could spend a lifetime wandering around that city and never get bored. I think that everybody probably has that reaction upon visiting Istanbul and some cringe and never leave their hotel room because it's really, really overwhelming. Um, but for us, it just felt it felt so fascinating, um, and the fact that that there was so little, at least in, in the English language, written about the sort of daily life of the city. You know, I mean, you can, there's a, there's a great amount of like historical writing and there's, you know, a Byzantine institute at every American university, but of what's going on in contemporary Istanbul, there really wasn't a lot of knowledge being shared. So, so it was like discovery around every corner and searching for how to study that you know, I, I came to food, which is, was a passion of mine and a, and a way to explore my hometown of Chicago growing up. And so that felt natural. It's like, okay, I can wait. You I were can a, do this. You were a food sherpa in Chicago. Yeah, I guess a kind okay. of a food sherpa in training or okay. some kind of a. So you were already doing that, like just, just kind of going on missions. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. In the way that that I think a lot of people who go out and, and hunt down you know, the the great Mexican restaurant or whatever it might be. But Chicago's interesting in that it's it's laid out in neighborhoods which are pretty coherent as like ethnic neighborhoods, you know, so you can go to the the Polish bars on, you know, parts of Western Avenue and it's and it's an all Polish scene in there. And they've got, you know, sausage and kind of things that that some somebody's wife brought in on a tray. And that yeah. that was thrilling to me that you could inside the city you could have all of these different sort of uh, relationships and experiences. Um, so that, so I kind of brought that to the way that I started studying Istanbul. Like, let's, let's go in, let's try to get, get the scoop on an area. Turks are extremely warm. If you, if you can speak Turkish, you'll be welcome to a table and they'll tell you the whole scoop. So it was, it was fertile ground for that kind of exploration. And it coincided with, uh, you know, great development in the city and a lot more interest in it from people traveling too. So yeah, every, everything kind of came together at the right moment. One of the things, and, and we will get back to where Culinary Backstreets comes, but you have, um, I think in terms of news pings on your name, you have a, a weird, um, there's, a, there's a duality to how you show up in news uh, references on the one hand, there's all of this coverage from journalists who, like myself, sort of fell in love with you and the way that you talked about food in Istanbul. So you're in all the great papers and everybody's like, and then my day got better when I ran into Ansel and he showed me the set net. Uh, the first references to you uh, in American news is as uh, someone who had been very close to a terrible terrorist attack. Oh uh, yeah, which was I think in the Guardian and Independent, and yeah. um, and that was uh, pretty early on in your time in Istanbul. Two thousand three, right? yeah. I guess it was. It was, was, was two thousand three. So I I think it's one. It's kind of like the perfect Istanbul mix, you know, which Istanbul is this amazing place to visit, incredible place to eat, and and then every once in a while has just an uh, an absolutely terrible attack. Absolutely. But what was that like, and why the hell did you stay? Well, I guess I'd already sort of become comfortable enough with the city to know that that this thing happens and it could happen any place uh which you know we had seen throughout that time um so i didn't really associate it with like some danger of the streets of istanbul um it you was did, you it didn't was, blame the city i didn't blame the city absolutely not um um but these were these it was were al fault yeah i mean these were twin bombings right yeah it's a british consulate and that was the one that i was close to so i was i was sitting in in my office and on istiklal jadesi you know the big uh, the big pedestrian thoroughfare of Beolu and uh, and 
the building was under renovation that we were working in, and um, the bomb went off at the, when a, a truck drove into the walls of the British consulate, and it shook the whole building and popped all the windows in because the building's windows were shoddy and poorly constructed, which is a great thing because they just swung in. Instead Rather of, than shattering. Yeah. And, I, it, uh, I think you had said it like it collapsed on your desk. Yeah, it was just, they were like that. Wow. And, uh, and so, yeah, yeah, I went out and Istiklal was a mess. It was, a, it was you know, all broken glass and people that, that were bleeding from their face or whatever. And, uh, and then I went over through um, the Hazopulo Passage, which is like a little narrow passage that opens onto a courtyard where they sell little trinkets and there's a tea there's a tea house there and went out the back and that's where you where the wall of the the british consulate was and is and uh and it was just a mess i mean it was incredible um and neither you nor your girlfriend thought that's it we're we're going back no i mean yeah. th- that was that was i think maybe that was when we started getting like serious calls from family and things like that, like where, what's going on? How are you staying there? Is that place safe? It's, it's unsafe. But, you know, we had kind of decided that this is where we, where we live and that this was not the kind of thing that, that is likely to be occurring all the time. And, and, uh, you know, we'd gotten used to the sight of, of anti-war demonstrations that were going on at the time too. And we, we, we realized that things that we didn't, see in the states were not necessarily frightening um that that a a demonstration can be a beautiful thing and it does and because you see images of Um, people marching in the street you know uh, shaking their fists it doesn't mean that they're going to hurt you like it's actually kind of a beautiful thing that was some tremendously elegant shade (laughs) (laughs) we saw things like people speaking about human rights and we realized that uh, not everything we don't have in the states and Uh, i guess i guess that that you know, looking looking at life through that lens also allowed us to see these bombings not as something that that uh, is is going to change the life we're leading there, and it's not necessarily something that's going to happen constantly. You just weren't frightened in general. No, yeah. no, and and people in Istanbul also have this incredible way of getting back to business as usual um, after something horrific like. Like a bombing, or or some of the little moments of violence that have happened uh, in Istanbul, people get on with it. I don't know how they deal with the trauma of it, but yeah. uh, that's maybe something else. Maybe it's by, you know, coming together and 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 getting on, sweeping things up. And, yeah. Uh, and so, you know, pretty quickly, you, life returned to normal, and uh, and the city just has so much energy that it's hard. It's hard to dwell on any single thing. Yeah. I mean, I feel that way about New York as a ground level entity, mm-hmm. but then all of the larger cultural noise is so disturbing about, you know, 9 11 in particular. It's yeah. just like New Yorkers definitely got their shit back in gear. I think in general, the rest of the country and, and you know, on some level, maybe New Yorkers who just can't, you know, just had another race baity fascist loving very solemn aspersion fest mm-hmm. <laughs> to celebrate the anniversary of 9-11 yeah, yeah just uh, uh, yesterday i guess it was uh yeah and that just um it does remind one that there are places where people just get up and and get on now granted even those bombings which were fucking terrible were not uh, quite the same but that ability i guess your 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 feeling which seemed to i don't know to animate your affection for the city is that Istanbul could just eat a lot of pain and just crap out amazing street food and vibrant life that was going to keep going anyway i think that's true um i think it is a city that that just survives and survives you know in beautiful style the impact of, of tourism there or, or some of the other kind of discussions that we have in, in cities where we work elsewhere. In, in Istanbul, it's, there's just so much there that there, the, the negative impact of tourism, is what I'm saying, like the kind of gentrification forces that, that everybody's arguing about these days is, is felt much to a smaller extent in Istanbul. Um, it's such a big city with such a big population and it's 
it's been a commercial hub for so long that, you know, another million Europeans, you know, buying fezes and a box of baklava is not going to change the place that much. It's an interesting thing to tell yourself at a time when, when it's, it's far less than a million uh, Europeans or whatever the benchmark was. But yeah, I, I get that. Um, but that kind of goes back to, I guess, this, the beginning of Istanbul Eats, mm-hmm. which turned into Culinary Backstreet. I think Yigal had mentioned a particularly shitty like Cuban restaurant. Yes. That was like a new hot thing. And you guys went and it sucked. Yeah, exactly. It was, yeah, it was a, a bad Cuban restaurant with buzz for some reason. And, and so, we, yeah, we were lamenting like, oh, there should be a place where, you know, you'd, where this place wouldn't show up. Not that you'd write some, some horrible review and pan the place, but, you know, something positive, but something that was reliable and, and would lead you to, the, to places where the, the Turkish party is going on and in a really good way. Yeah. And if, I mean, for you, that's less, it's not like, it's not like having a bad Cuban restaurant was, uh, is going to hurt Istanbul in general. But I think for people to not know that there are other things to be excited about there mm. or not understand the, you know, uh, the way of eating, the kind of things that, that you're showing people and you started to show people, that's that's the key difference, feeling like there wasn't that kind of cultural outlet for people to realize they don't have to go to just a new restaurant, but they can see this, the things that are all around them. Like Absolutely. Littered yeah. at their feet. Um, how did you how did you guys go from that? And when did you when did you start to make that a career? Um, is this a career? Can we career? I'm not sure if I described it as that. It's yeah. certainly an occupation. Yeah. Um, okay. When, did, when was that something you but, started to do? Uh, we started. To we started. So we started just writing about the restaurants. Yigal and I. He'd write one, and then I'd write one. He'd write one. We do two or three a week, and uh, and just post them on Istanbul Eats like that. And your criteria was like what was it like? No linen tablecloths. Like no fusion food. It was limited to the, the the means that we had to work with. So you know we were on our own sort of determined budgets um but it was more about just the places that we were excited about um and we had, we had such a backlog of this you you know how these things start as like an email that you'd forwarded to a friend and then their friend emailed and said hey i heard you know you can you can set me up with a list of great spots in istanbul and you forward them that email so you know it, it already started there was a sort of list that it started with and um that's fascinating and then it went yeah. into it, it became it started in that way of like enthusiasm for finding those meals that are just quintessentially Istanbul where, you know, you walk in and, and the crowd is a certain way and, and, and the guys behind the counter are and the place, you know, the, de- the decor, it's not this sort of dusty, authentic, uh, sort of Ottoman-esque thing. It's something new. It's tiled to the ceilings. You know, it's like really Istanbul. And a place, you know, you could hose it off after every meal, which they do. And, uh, and that's what we were really trying to get at is, uh, is that sort of contemporary Istanbul thing is kind of hard to describe, but it's like that, you know. It's interesting because I think that sense of time was also part of the beef about Istanbul, too, that people stopped caring about whatever happened after, like, Constantinople. Well, you know, whatever, like 18th century Istanbul is as far as the imagination could reach mm-hmm. and not realizing that the kind of maybe garishly lit, yes. uh, over-tiled, kind of modern Istanbul was the shit where you totally. know, the action was. I mean, the, yeah, the, I, that's totally true. The, the real action, I think, was born in the early 90s of, of Istanbul, you know, that came in the trunk of cars from southeastern Turkey and the northeast. And, you know, when, when it's always been a migration hub to a certain extent, but at that time you really had lots and lots of families coming in and setting up businesses and setting up little little shops and and you'd go into certain ones in 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 a district and it'd be all people from the city of urfa you know and you'd identify them immediately (laughs) that this is an urfa place and to be able to never leave istanbul but be able to spot a guy from urfa across the room like that's a huge gift that the city gives you because there just are that many orphans in Istanbul, and is they're very the, distinct. Is that really state. what you call them? Orphans? Or, orphans? Sure. Why yeah, not? you got to be careful with that. <laughs> I mean, they've got parents for God's The Urfala. Yeah, the, the Urfala to be, to be uh, correct linguistically. I, I feel but like... you had that for so much. You had, you know, you know, 
Bosnian communities that were all in a certain district and, and uh, Georgians that came, you know, in, in the 19th century, but are still very, very Georgian in a way. And with, by, by just spending time in the neighborhoods and, and noticing little key words and the, the way they name their, their restaurants, you know, after the Mostar Bridge or whatever it is, it's like, I got a good feeling that's, that's a Bosnian joint. And, uh, and that was just a pleasure. So that, that kept us busy for, for years. And, and the, the tours developed out of that. It was really something that we had started doing just recreationally. You know, people would want to come along. You'd have friends or, or people in town that you kind of knew. And, and you'd say, ah, do you want to hit this, uh, this bean place, you know? on the outskirts and, and yeah, why not? We'll go with you for beans. And you end up, you know, picking around the district. And we realized that that was something that we could do in a more professional way. So that's how it grew into, uh, into a business and eventually sort of professional. Um, or a career, as yeah, I career, called it. A career. Let's go. Uh, I hope it, you know, makes, makes your mom happy that uh, I've, I've anointed it an actual career. I mean, it is, it is funny, um, the the amount of human effort that can go into trying to simplify or perhaps evade that request for the list of places. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why that's why Roads and Kingdoms at some point, I think early early last year, like January 2018, started going real hard on city guides. Mm-hmm. It was in part because like Matt was getting so many requests for Barcelona stuff. He's like, I have the list. I would love a URL. That would be the bomb. Like if I just had one place you can send people and be like, here's all the stuff that right. I know. Anything that's not on here, I don't know right. or am not going to tell you. <laughs> so, um, but but that extra move from, you know, from your point of creating Istanbul Eats and then like getting, actually getting people trying to create appetite and then kind of uh, deliver uh, to people you you don't know or mm-hmm. who aren't even friends of friends, uh, I thought that was that was really interesting. And and I think you had said something in one of these news stories. It's basically like, you know, tourists don't want to feel like tourists, which seems obvious, and yet it's incredibly profound. And then also a little like tragic, you know? Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, we're all. Right, we're all who we are. <laughs> right, it's sort of a it's one of those tasks of you know of damnation. It's just like I want to go somewhere. I only have five days. Right, <laughs> I want to go and and pretend like I'm not doing exactly what I'm doing. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I think the first moment that I really, really understood the value of what you do you weren't even there at all it was one of your guides in Istanbul on that bazaar tour mm-hmm. um, which is this eating tour which is an obscene number of stops and plates and ideas and you know sort of context and personalities that you run into um, and I chose it specifically because I wanted to be disappointed I wanted to find a reason to be disappointed in it because when I had been working at Time, I had actually done reporting in the Grand Bazaar mm-hmm. with a, you know, a Turkish journalist who's uh, a bad motherfucker and knew everybody, and and there was no way I was going to learn something new about the bazaar, except that I totally did. Like this tour that uh, I think Gonka was Gonja, uh, yeah, yeah, Gonja, yeah, 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 yeah. Gonja, yeah, yeah. She's uh, still going strong. Yeah, I mean, it was great, and I felt like I. I felt like a newborn child, like I'd never been to the Grand Bazaar a day in my life, and uh, and we ate like pashas, and we had a great time, and it was so smart and so journalistically smart, just kind of blew my mind uh, that you could create an experience that would be like that and wouldn't suck. I mean, yeah. I, I I don't think I'd ever been on a food tour before, but I was very certain it was going to suck. <laughs> well, I think that that's. Because a lot of tours are designed just to be that, as opposed to saying, okay, we've got this subject. It's Mustafa's meatballs. You know, how can we describe that in an interesting way? You know, how can we create an experience around those meatballs that's exciting, that, that, that is, you know, uh, engaging and intellectually uh, stimulating? And I think that's it, it lies in, in, in the research and in the relationship you make with Mustafa. I mean, if you can bring Mustafa 
into people's lives and, you know, tell the history of, of Mustafa and how his shop started and, and, you know, shake his hand. I mean, that just really makes a difference from sucking to not sucking, I think. Uh, and, and that's just the way we approached it, not as we're making a food tour, but as we want to make you as excited about these meatballs as, as we became, and here's how it happened. And so each of the stops on the tour is something like that. It's kind of an outsider's introduction to a very insider subject. And, um, and we learned that by stumbling through it dozens and dozens of times until we're like, ah, this is why, you know. And, uh, and it, it often ends up being about the people in, in the shops that just make it really special. And that's why we keep, I mean, as opposed to doing city guides, which I think are really useful and people want them and use them. Uh, but we're still, we're still publishing, a, you know, a few articles a month on the meatballs in, in Istanbul since 2009, 10 years. We're still like in each city that we Damn, start working a, in, we still, we, we always, there's no end to the project. That's a beat, man. So there's a lot of. You're on the meatball beat. A lot of, a lot of meatballs. To the end. <laughs> exactly. And you are you literally like are you just keep going back and being like yep Mustafa is still banging out the meatballs or is it like no it's the new meatball joint updates updates a update no no we're, we're it's usually almost always it's new stories yeah um, I mean Istanbul's so big that there's so much to write about um, and I think that you know just to stick with our meatballs but you know each meatball does tell a different story I mean they can be very similar but the one across town it's it's a different context a different neighborhood. And so there's a different story to tell. And uh, we don't see any limitations or any reason why to say, okay, we looked in the archive. We've got 300 meatball stories. That's maybe enough for that subject. But, you know, why, uh, why not keep going? I, I love that. I think I, I, that also strikes me as probably um, much more native to the appetites and the metabolism of, of Internet content in general than... You know, our approach at Roads and Kingdoms a lot was almost to like put um, like an unnecessary break on stuff. Like, yeah, we had a lot of fucking articles from the Republic of Georgia because the Republic of Georgia is great. True. <laughs> like there's war and there's wine, you know, like why wouldn't we just keep hammering it? But, you know, I think our instinct as, you know, sort of curators of a uh, of some sort of tableau, we were sort of like... I don't know, we don't want to betray like a, you know, a, a weird imbecilic obsession with this country, even though we were imbeciles obsessed with that country, you mm -hmm. know, and I think that... Not uh, the Hinkali though, huh? Oh, I mean, listen, Hinkali <laughs> could be a part of that. I mean, I, I remember having written about the regional variations of Hachapuri, you know, the shapes, the runniness of the egg, the amount of the butter, and, and feeling, even with one article feeling a little ashamed of the like deep nerdiness of it in the sense that like I felt like that was all a general interest audience could stomach. Mm -hmm. But I think the culinary Backstreet's way would be to just fucking go back in and just like, you won't believe it, but the Imareti Hachapuri has developed a new twist. Exactly. And there's somebody who's doing like, on one side, he's tying it off like it's a fucking canoe. On the other <laughs> side, it's snub nose like a pontoon boat, you know? And, uh, and, you, and you would be delivering something that does not exist out there on the internet as you guys do. And I, I don't know. I think there's, I, I, I'm, I'm very intrigued by your total surrender to your obsessions. Mm -hmm. um, and and to the thank you, Nathan. <laughs> yes, you have absolutely given in, uh, and it, and in the most wonderful way. I think that's really. I think that's the thing that creates that that sense. I mean, it's almost like um, it reminds me of the site, the Wire Cutter, which is one of my favorite all time internet um, content startups. It's journalist Brian Lamb who he would basically just murder you with information. Like, and he, you know, he was qualified to do it, but in this, it was all tech reviews, and he had this thing, he'd be like, you know, we have compared, and it could be home tech, it'd be like, we've compared, you know, upright vacuum cleaners. Mm -hmm. And it was like, boom, 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 boom. And like, here's our findings, here's why you should listen to us. You know, I, I spent 15 years as a, you know, vacuum cleaner research analyst or some shit. And it, you would just, your eyes would roll into the back of your head and you would, you would know that they knew 
all that they had to know and you didn't want to hear any more. You were physically sickened by how much thought they had put into this and had put on the page. And it was this really comforting, you know, thing. Uh, and it's what I think made the Wirecutter such a success is that idea of like, we are going so deep, like you don't even want to follow us, but just look at us down here, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, look how far we've gone in the meatball culture in Istanbul yeah. and know that when you have three meals to eat, we're going to give you the right ones or something. For sure. And and I mean, when you go down that, that meatball hole so deep, it also manages, you manage to break into a more local conversation, which I think is, is something that we always aspired to do, even though we were publishing in English. We actually started off in English and Turkish and realized that's crazy. We can't, we can't run a website in English and Turkish. Um, but we we did gain readers that were in Turkey that were that realized that that we were part of a local conversation that was going on and and sometimes I think we're seen as these you know kooky guy jeans you know in, into the meatballs a little too much um, but then with time earned earn the respect of yeah. of, uh, of local readers and you know we had a, a column in a in a local newspaper where we we run stories about meatballs uh, because it matters a lot to people locally and and you know understanding those minute differences between each meatball was something important uh so it it just made our our lives more exciting too at the end of the day not to we, we felt very engaged with the city we were living in um we felt like we had a real purpose to be at lunch every day but then also uh, having a local appreciation not that we're just speaking to guests who really just want a top 10 out of us, um, you know, visitors who are coming to Istanbul, but people who really wanted to know um, where the next meatball was. Uh, so that that was just a fun part of our lives that, that wasn't necessarily about building a career or anything else, but just becoming the master of the story. I believe that it's a it's maybe a common a common sort of uh, positioning that people have to say that we're very connected to the people that we, who are part of the tour, who are on the path. And um, mm-hmm. I have seen examples, uh, you know, my friend Rocio Vasquez in, in Mexico City, like is running straight up schoolroom classes for kids of the market and stuff like very deep. The only other place I've seen that kind of level of commitment is with you guys. I remember there was a Simit vendor, right? Yeah. In, in Istiklal or? In Jihangir. Uh, yeah. Who had gotten ill or what had happened? No, uh, there was a gas explosion in, oh, a, shit. in an apartment building across from where he stopped his his cart every morning. You know, and He was always in the same corner in the neighborhood. And, uh, and it was, you know, a natural gas explosion. And it killed him because... Uh, falling debris just like took him out and uh and so he died you know imagine a street fender doesn't have much of a 401k or anything like that i mean there was nothing it was just the cart and uh and his son decided that he would pick it up with no training in the field or anything like that he said i just want to keep this going and uh and yeah so we tried to help or or to rally support from our readers to to get him started and get off his feet and when we we did that kind of a thing when when we saw the chance and when we said okay we i think we can we can help with something that that should that deserves it it was incredible to see like readers were like yeah of course you know they donate money or or offer support or come out for for vigils or if a restaurant's going to close and it shouldn't because the landlord's a bastard uh, then we call them out for kaimak and they'd come you know and it was you know it was sort of a form of protest uh, sometimes Man, a, a call to Kaimak, uh, which is that incredible, like, heavy cream. Yeah, the clotted cream. That of is... The, of the buffaloes. That, to me, is what finer form of protest could there be? It's easy to draw a crowd when, you know, <laughs> you're flogging Kaimak. Come um, get your Kaimak and do good. Yeah, exactly. Um, by eating difference. well. We're here in Porto. Mm-hmm. You live in Lisbon. Mm-hmm. Um, what the hell happened? Uh, well, we'd, we'd been, so got married, uh, you know, the girlfriend that, that we, we started this adventure with, we turned, turned into a married couple, um, and then parents and, uh, 15 years after settling in Istanbul, we, I won't, 15 years after we left 
but probably a couple years before that we were thinking like, ah, oh, you know, it'd be really nice to, to see more of the world or to, to continue this thing someplace else. Um, and, and so, yeah, we, we started thinking about that and we had at this time set up in a number of different cities. So the whole thing wasn't just tied to the meatball story. You know, we, we were elsewhere. So we had that luxury to, to look to other places and, and Lisbon also just sort of struck us as, ah, this is, this could work. This could be really interesting. And so we decided to move to, to Lisbon, Portugal. There was, I mean, that was also concurrent with a lot of, a lot of the things that we know were kind of about what had been happening in Turkey was continued to happen. I think only accelerated, right? Yeah, that was, that was kind of a dark time that got darker. Yeah. And now somehow it, it feels like things are, things are getting better there. And, and I go back regularly and, and obviously we have, we have uh, strong relationships with people there and, and, and people are, people are, I think a bit more optimistic about, about Turkey's future now, but yeah, there were some real dark periods <laughs> right in the last 10 years. Um, and did you feel like, I mean, was that part of it? I mean, because also tourism had kind of fallen. I mean, not, I, I wouldn't say just tourism because I, I, th- I think, but the kind of tourism, like that kind of ad- adventurous, the tourist that doesn't want to feel like a tourist suddenly felt like a very rare thing indeed, right? Mm, I would say actually they, that kind of tourist was, was undeterred by the kind of news that was coming out of Turkey, but certainly, you know, the sight of tourists was, was rare. Um, you know, all of the big cruise ships canceled. They were not coming into port. Turkey was marketing itself more to, to, uh, to the Gulf. So you had this sort of replacement of tourism audiences, which people felt very, very quickly. And so, you know, Turkish people would be like, oh, the, the, the Arabs are invading our city. You know, it's all nargile shops and gaudy baklava with, you know, gold wallpaper. And there were these really funny, frequent complaints. Um, but the, I don't know, the intrepid, independent kind of uh, tourists always remained. I mean, we, we certainly, we could measure it in terms of of our of our um, business but it it never fell off the cliff mm. you know it kind of went it got drowsy kind of went into sleep for a while but it was we were we were always still working and people were still there and and by that time uh and long before you had left istanbul you 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 and you all had spread this out then to other cities that's right yeah we uh in 2010 i guess we started setting up other cities setting up i don't know what we fell in love with other places and saw a way to do projects just like we had in Istanbul. Of course, we wouldn't be the the Sherpas, right? We had to find another backstreet gourmet. Yeah, we had to find another guy with a dirty toque, you know, <laughs> back in the alley. Um, and we did, and we and that that's that became a, a a new sort of phase of our work, which was really exciting. Was finding local voices um, that. You know, maybe they'd turn up in an article like when a, when a foreign journalist was coming to write about a very specific uh, culinary or culturally related subject, uh, they'd turn up. Um, but otherwise, not really recognized for working in the field for their entire lives, you know, as local journalists in, working in a local language for the most part. Uh, so it was really fun to get with someone like that who really knows the terrain as a local. Yeah. And... Uh, and is interested in sort of sharing that with a, with an English-speaking audience or or guests who are coming that are looking to spend a day on a tour like we de- uh, develop. How many cities are you guys in now? Twelve. Twelve. Mm-hmm. That's grown since I think it's we grown. spoke last. It could. Uh, all could right. Uh, rattle them off. All right. right. There is Istanbul, uh, Athens, Barcelona, um, Lisbon, Porto, Shanghai, Beijing, Tokyo. Mexico City, Naples, Tbilisi, and Izmir. Izmir. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Yeah, Izmir is cool. So you you're actually expanding in Turkey. Well, we you know we added Izmir quite a while ago. Oh, really? Yeah, Izmir. Izmir is a very cool city and a great food city. Huh. I mean, for I think a lot of Turkey. It becomes famous for, you know, meatballs. 
<laughs> but but Turkish people uh, really love escape. the Aegean. You know, I mean, come on, like a a, a a a table as big as this bed covered with meze and fresh vegetables and things like that. I mean, that really that excites a lot of people in Turkey. So the I mean, that Ege, the, yeah. the Aegean with with Izmir at its center, uh, is is a real culinary boon. Now, as much as uh, I should, you know, love to talk about Istanbul for hours and hours and hours, I want to hear kind of like the Portugal story for you guys now. Uh, you said why you moved to Lisbon. Right. Um, what you saw in it, has that, has that come true? Like, you had such a crazy setup with your kids in Istanbul and just like the way that you made the school work and, and that whole community. Like, what's it like now raising a kid or raising kids in Portugal? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a very different experience. Having kids in Istanbul was an extension of what we were already doing since, you know, before we could apply for a credit card. Um, you know, and, and arriving in Lisbon was a very different experience because we had two kids. And so we had sort of expectations and things that we knew we had to take care of. You know, school a sort of proper lodging, all of those kind of things that we never took for granted. Um, and, and so it, it's, it's gone smoothly. Um, and, and with, with the sort of smooth nature of it, of course, it, it lacks some of the adventure that existed in, in Istanbul or in our life in Istanbul, but it's been great. And, and I, and I think it was a, it was a good move. We're, we're both studying the language and our kids are obviously much better at it than we are, which is funny to experience when we go to restaurants, but uh, useful, actually. How's their um, Turkish? Their Turkish? Is, it, it must be sleeping. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Think it, I don't it's, think it's it, deep. It's deep. It's deep in hibernation. Yeah. Um, but, but so they're, they're, are they in, they're in an international school. They are. But just the Portuguese all around them. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a bilingual school that the mm. kids are in. And uh, it's a great place. And they're having fun. They're very adaptable. Uh, my wife and I are struggling to learn the language. And, you know, we went from Istanbul that we knew so well and had so much time to really get to know to something very different, a different sort of life now where, you know, parents and and we're working more hours on this thing, uh, Culinary Backstreets. So it's different. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I'd say that we've that we're slowly setting roots. We just can't we can't set them quite as quickly as we could in Istanbul. But we're totally happy there, and we're doing the same thing. I mean, exploring the city through food, following you know following that food to exciting stories that end up being, you know, I don't write so much about Lisbon because I don't feel like I'm an expert on the place quite yet. And we have good people who are writing in Lisbon, but you, you haven't, know. you haven't unlocked the Sherpa badge. Not quite yet. Yeah. No. Um, but, but it's you, been, but it's this thing of, of, uh, of working with people who, who really are the Sherpas who really have the knowledge. And that's a, that's a pleasure. So I get to do that all the time in, in Lisbon rather than the cities that are farther away where I can't be there quite as often. And how did Porto get on the map? Porto, Porto got on the map um, because it's a really beautiful fucking city and, uh, and and a great pleasure to go around. I mean, it has this incredible story that's very different from Lisbon that's related to, you know, the port wine industry and uh, the wines of the Douro Valley. And it's it, it has this sort of industrial past. It's different. It's very different from Lisbon. I think that excited us. It's it's compact enough to to go around on foot it's got a good local gastronomy food's good here it's it's hard to find a bad meal and it has this connection to the north that i think exists less in lisbon also whereas lisbon has a more of a connection to to the south of the country and then um the former colonies whereas porto it just feels entirely different so we said ah you know portugal is a small country we didn't think that we'd be doing multiple cities in Portugal, but, but then Porto came up and, and we found some great people here and realized like, oh, that's a, that's a very cool story that's coming out of Porto. I do get a little bit of the sense, you know, I, have, I spent a lot of time in Galicia mm -hmm. where you have that kind of like, I mean, for me, they always sounded like they were speaking Portuguese. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and and it's just this weird mix of kind of coast and and mountains where you'll go to you know a chilly hilltop restaurant uh, an hour and a half from the sea and they're making fucking incredible octopus you know mm. in vats and stuff and it's just like Porto, to my mind, at least in my imagination, is this place that has all of those elements, but then it's also right on a swimmable beach. Right. And it's a very, you know, it's this sort of very beguiling uh, combination, and it's warm as shit, yeah. uh, which is not true of Galician Mountains always, always. And I don't know, there's, um, it has this sort of sense of invitation to it. It does. And Portugal in general is kind of an odd... The, I mean, there was a moment where we nearly had a mutiny in Brooklyn of people who wanted us to move our headquarters to Lisbon hmm. because um, they were making it easy for people to come in. I, I think one of our editors was really excited about all the cheap Coke. Mm. Um, it's a great sign That's... <laughs> that they've come into the right business. That's... It's Portugal marketing itself to <laughs> yeah, that's right. Marketing internet to, businesses to set up shop to Brooklyn. I mean, Matasinhos per gram is that is it listed in some brochure? <laughs> yeah, right. Gram of Coke, ten euros. Uh, <laughs> Matasinhos has a really fatally terrible um, marketing slogan for itself. That's the uh, that's where I'm staying. Where this conference that I'm uh, going to be talking at is uh, a little bit north of here. It says WBF, W apostrophe BF. Then underneath it says world's best fish. Ah, yeah. She's yeah. like, one, unprovable. Two, maybe. But three, that's really dumb. Yeah. <laughs> like, it just can't be your slogan for your small town. And the apostrophe? The apostrophe, is I, it like worlds? I, yeah, the... I, th I think they just pulled it from worlds. <laughs> it's real. Oh, well. It's real crazy. Uh, but I was thinking of, um, you know, my my dear uh, friend, this editor, and just, right, like, Coke, you know, 20 euros a gram <laughs> would have been such a more effective, you know, sure. to, the, uh, to the, the class of Brexit refugees and kind of, you know, Brooklyn burnouts and all the other people who, uh, at, at least, I, it feels like the moment has passed in the sense that, like, maybe it's just a news moment that has kind of moved on. But like, are people moving to Portugal in in with that velocity? I don't know if in hordes. Uh, I don't know what's going on at the frontiers, but uh, anecdotally, yes, I think so. Um, you know, our experience in the schools in Lisbon are that. You know, they went from, come on, yeah, no problem, we'll fit you in. You have, it's August, you're applying for September, come, no problem, you know, and, and, and all that's changed. Uh, you know, I know I know people from Istanbul, friends of friends, who are all getting in touch, like, hey, we're kind of thinking Lisbon, you know, and, and a lot of that has to do with the relocation of their businesses, uh, and they're... They're quite flexible. I think they make it easy. If you're if you're if you're going to bring in jobs, if you're going to bring your business in, they'll make it a lot easier than elsewhere. And and it's a, it's an easygoing country when a lot of Europe is, getting frightening. Right. <laughs> Portugal's pretty cool. Uh, so I think that makes sense. I, I I I think maybe the, the buzz about it is wearing off, but I don't think that the interest level is necessarily, dying down. I think we'll see a lot more. What do you think about where your kids are going to go with this life that you've provided them? Uh, I just don't want them to grow up and be a Sherpa like their daddy. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't know. Uh, it's Not funny. a backstreet gourmet. You know, we work, we, we work from home. You know, uh, my wife and I work together. She, she joined and, and does a lot of like running, running the whole business. She had a serious like corporate job for she a was long a, time. Well, she was a consultant, yeah, for since basically the day we landed, she had a serious job yeah. with a, a consulting company, was working all over the region. And at the same time, as Culinary Backstreets became something resembling a business and, and I needed help with that, she was helping out because she had this experience, this knowledge that, you know, I could never... I could never have. Um, so she did a lot of that sort of pro bono, you know, just kicking, yeah. kicking in to, to, to 
make things happen. And uh, then eventually she came and started working with us full time. And so our kids just sort of uh, overhear everything that's going on, you know, yeah. uh, you know, the, the life and times of culinary backstreet. So they're, they're heavily exposed to it, you know, and of course we were constantly going out and eating in restaurants or meeting people that have to do with this whole world that we work in it's it's the world we live in so i don't know i mean uh what could be in their future gout um <laughs> uh, one thing i know w- about washing dishes there's a, there's a lot of ways we could go with this uh, but I, I i think that they're they're pretty well-rounded eaters which is fun and, and that's not something we're we're really you know fanatical about it's you know, we we try to eat good food, and it's more modeling than you know, sort of uh, yes. frog marching them to yeah, exactly uh, strange dishes. But in terms of, I don't know, are they American? That's tricky. Yeah, their their sort of identity. I think that they they associate themselves with America. They've never lived there, but um, they've always been the American in the room, like yeah. in a school or something. Right? We were we were in um. It was shortly after we arrived in, in Portugal, and, and, and we had no idea where to get our hair cut, like uh, me and my son Jimmy. And so we went out, and, and we, we were trying uh, a Bangladeshi barber. We lived close to this sort of Bangladeshi district, South, sort of South Asian um, commercial area in Lisbon. And we, so we went to a barber called uh, Bangla Salon. And, and, and we go in, and the guy's really sweet, and he's speaking English. And he says, what's your name? Uh, Jimmy. Jimmy's getting his hair cut. And he says, oh, where are you from, Jimmy? And Jimmy says, Turkey. And the guy says, oh, are you Muslim? And Jimmy says, no. And the guy's kind of confused. And, and I was seeing this thing happen where people make assumptions about your, your background or, or you say you're from here, it means you're this. Or, and, and he didn't quite know how to navigate that. But since then, he's become much more uh, comfortable saying that he's American. Um, and he wears like Chicago Bears paraphernalia or whatever it is that really you've wrapped him up into that it. cult. Huh? I don't know. It's like <laughs> godparents do that kind of stuff. Um, I think it's not a strong nationalism in in these kids, and that's nice. Uh, that's nice to see. They're certainly, you know, incorporating all these little bits and pieces from Turkey or from Portugal, and and so in some way becoming bionic humans i hope <laughs> right we're right. so utterly we're, confused we're One creating of a more perfect uh generation after us i, I yeah I, I i could see that sort of that light untethering mm-hmm. i guess it's a balance and and it all depends on personality too but that that sense of just kind of pleasant dislocation you know yeah. where you're just like okay i don't really know where i should go but i know that i'll do pretty well wherever it is um is is the the kind of optimistic version yeah and i'm hoping that 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 includes feeling comfortable to to study in europe or not you know not feeling like as an american there there are these sort of borders and where your life's supposed to end up has these sort of stages of development which are sort of prescribed right um and i think that living living outside of america will give him that yeah him and his sister nelly uh that opportunity just to just to not necessarily you know go to u of i yeah well and then you won't necessarily have to pay five hundred thousand fucking dollars <laughs> for that. college so any any you know kind of any child uh, rearing strategy which allows them to contemplate going to university in Mexico or Europe or somewhere where university costs what it costs yeah. and not, you know, whatever the markup is, uh, I think is a, a wonderful thing. I mean, it's funny we talk about, you know, with a lot of the the, the perils of the world, you talk about, you know, kind of individual versus collective action. I think it's like, I think it's kind of powerful personal politics to raise kids in the way that you're doing it. When Americans are becoming more kind of encased in their own carapace and mm-hmm. just shittier global citizens to just take two of them yeah. and say, we made a couple Americans who aren't afraid of, you know, large parts of the world. I think it's a pretty awesome thing. Um, it's just you being a Sherpa. That's what it is. It's a heavy load. You uh, you do it so well. Um <laughs> All right, I uh, I am so thrilled that you came out to Porto 
Uh, I think we're going to go get some drinks and some food. Punch um, is gone, nearly. That would be on me. Um, you like? Do you like the punch? I like the punch. I also didn't sleep last night because I flew in on a red eye, and I do know this much about myself. Uh, if I can get alcohol, you know, in kind of high amounts to combat a, a jet lag or just a straight yeah. narcolepsy, um, then it'll give me a couple hours to just power through. Sweet. So we've got to, we've got to, I'd say two good hours before I just collapse in a heap in Battaglia Square here. Post-punch pints. Post-punch pints. <laughs> Spoken like a true Backstreet Gourmet. Ansel, one of my favorite people. Thank you for being on this show. Thanks, Nathan. The Trip from Roads and Kingdoms is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg. Alexa Van Sickle is our producer. Theme music by Dan the Automator. Episode illustration by Daisy D. Show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. Executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. Next week, our last conversation for now from this lively gray city. I am fascinated by the work of Porto native Anna Auergau, whose hyper-intricate line drawing and visual art combines an obsession with detail and research and accuracy with insanely probing hypotheticals about apocalypse and decay and ruin. Her mind is on some other level entirely, a level we are going to try to reach once again through the medium of alcohol. We will meet you there.